Hey up and welcome to the Temple of Blair. A little bit of housekeeping. You may notice some video interviews going up, like proper filmed video interviews. Um, that's one of the reasons that the podcast has been a little bit slower. you got to go out and spend time doing shit. This is obviously me filming parts of the Roadrunner documentary, um, masked in some interviews. So all the Roadrunner shit you'll, are being held back. You won't see any of the documentary. You'll just see the other shit that I'm in filming. Um, but yeah, that's why it's been a little bit quiet around here lately. This is a conversation with Carl Severson. Carl Severson of Good Fight Entertainment slash Good Fight Music. Home to a variety of hardcore and metal acts, uh, including a Rarity, Sky Harbor, Within the Ruins, Funeral Friend, Chokehold, a whole bunch of them, so you can go check that out. So Carl worked at Roadrunner uh, late 90s, early 2000s as the head of new media, which is uh, boomer speak for the internet. And uh, at the same time, Carl was running Ferret Music, another rather prestigious outfit of the time. And obviously, we jump into that shit. So, without further ado, one, two, fuck shoot up. One of the things that I would like to put out there is that, like, you know, Roadrunner was successful because of some of the most amazing people in the music industry ever. Corey Brennan, Case Wessels, Jonas Nassen, um, fucking Dave Lanco. Like, I mean, I mean, and that, that's just, that only touches it mm. for a little bit. Um, and there were so many people there that were so, so good to me. And my story with Roadrunner is Roadrunner is the only job I've ever had. Like, I'm blessed, you know, like, mm. and I'm not religious at all. So like, I don't know how to say it. I guess I'm lucky. Like, I mean, I had another job before I worked at Blockbuster when I was fucking high school. But, <laughs> but no, like I, thanks to a guy named Matt Young, who you should look up and potentially bring into this video. Sure. Because he's one of the most amazing and prolific people in Roadrunner's history. Uh, right. Tell me about that. Then. Uh, so, so I met Matt when I, my shitty hardcore band that turned into a really big portion of my life with some of my best friends, um, recorded our first song and he had, he were he was at the time, I think he was head of sales hmm. at blue grape, which is Roadrunner's sister company. Yeah. Um, at the time I didn't know anything about any of that. I just knew that like, you know, like I was right out of college and I worked at a diner and I was really stoked on being in the hardcore band. And uh, he was putting together a comp called Definitely Not The Majors. And that was the name of the comp. And he put us on it. And that was our first ever recorded song. And, uh, you know, it sounds like shit, but uh, in my opinion, still a pretty sweet song. And we ripped off a little Sepultura in it. It was good. And, uh, <laughs> you know, but it, but it was a good time. But Matt and I had been friends for a while. So when I was in college at Rutgers, I had been trying to get into music for a while. And somehow or another, and honestly, I'm old enough, I don't remember the details, but I got an internship at Earache in Manhattan. Right. And, uh, and I interned for Matt Young at the time, and uh, him and I stayed good friends. I met some other amazing people there. Uh, Lou DeCarolis 
he'll probably never watch this. He's also known as Kung Fu Lu, and as well as Eric Lemasters, who's another amazing individual. But uh, so I was at Eric. I still was. I sat there the day when the At the Gates record that Eric put out when they were like, oh, we got the master. So they sent it to the New York office and they're like, oh, everyone sit down. We got to listen to this. Mm-hmm. So like I sat there for the first time, anyone in that office listened to that record. And it's legit. I mean, it, it, I don't know if there's a better metal record ever, but I remember yeah. listening to it and being like, fuck, this is good. You know, this and is I the stove. how good. Cause I was so young, you know, but Anyway, long story short, Matt Young and I stayed really close. He left Earache, ended up at Blue Grape, which is Roadrunner's sister company. Mm-hmm. And when he knew I could, like, fuck with the internet, basically, <laughs> you know, because I had my own label and I was still in college. And I was like, oh, I'm learning how to do the internet and make web pages and stuff. And uh, he was like, hey, you know how to do this, right? Because they're looking for somebody. And I was like, dude, I'll do that. You know, like. I'm in. And so he brought me in for an interview and uh, it was a weird interview because uh, I'm the only person ever that got hired by Roadrunner who was brought in by Blue Grape. Blue Grape was their merchandising company, a sister company, brought me in. And uh, yeah, it was funny. (laughs) Super weird turn of events. but, uh, But yeah, it turned out to be one of the better things that ever happened to me. So... Well, let's talk about the new media role, because we know f- being a child of the time, right. when you're dealing with new media, I was watching Newgrounds and maybe E-Bombs World was around then, but there wasn't a right lot. So did, did Rotary ever give you like a scope as to what your world should look like? It's like, we want to be, we want this to be a dominant platform. We want the internet to be really in your face as far as Rotary is concerned. Or were they just like, make sure we've got a presence in this space? No, it, it turned into that 100% for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, it did not start like that. Um, I didn't come in there as being like, yo, we got this badass kid that's going to do this and pop it off. Right. They were like, uh, we got someone that's going to handle this. We're going to put him in the fucking corner and he'll just, you know, do his thing. And uh, yeah, and that was fine. Oh, and I, you know, and uh, worked out. Um, but I did halfway decent at it, just kind of like building the website and then, you know, and then eventually I was like, all right, you know, we're big enough. Let's get a new website and make it nice. And I, I, I got them to agree to like a heftier budget to build another one out. Um, but it was weird. I mean, I mean, anyone under 30 would be like, dude, this guy's job was a waste of time, but you had to be there. You know, like, I, I mean, the first big internet thing I did was when it was Cold Chamber headlining, Cold Chamber, Machine Head, Slipknot, and A-Man were on tour together. Right. And they were playing... Fuck, I'm old, so I forget. But they were playing someplace in in L.A. that was a big deal. Mm-hmm. And so this was my second business trip ever. I'd never been on 
a trip paid for by a company. So yeah, like a music business trip. Yes. Business trip. They were like, here's your corporate card to pay for things. And I was like, what? You know, like, um, but so we did that, but it was like, I mean, now what I did that day, you could film on your phone right now. Yeah. But what we did that day, there was like multiple trucks and fucking giant cables running around. And it was just insane to film this whole thing off the internet. I mean, we must've spent like 30 something thousand dollars or something. Wow. I mean, maybe more, you know, which what you could do on your iPhone today. But mm-hmm. at the same time, it was a huge deal then. And it was a huge deal for me because they were like, all right, Carl, knock this shit out, figure it out. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll figure <laughs> it out. You know? And uh, yeah, it, it, it was super fun. There's other stories about that night that I want to talk about, but uh, yeah. <laughs> was the, speaking of the information technology version at the time, the, I always bring this up, was the intranet, the internal intranet created by this point? Because everyone bangs on about it. Like I, I, it wasn't like a cloud, but yes, we, yeah, we had an intranet where we stored images and documents and stuff like that. There was this guy, Andrew, um, I forget his last name, which is terrible, but Bottom line, he was probably the smartest dude at the entire company. Um, McCormick? Sounds oh, right. I like, I need to, I've got like a list of like the IT guys and I'm trying to just remember it from memory. Oh no, but he was the top. I mean, hmm. he, he did everything. He ran everything, anything didn't work, he fixed it. But he was so much more than that. This dude was yeah. just like, we were just like, you know, when you're around, you're like, the smartest dude in the room is there. Like, he was the smartest dude in the room. Right. Like, yeah, and he wasn't a marketing guy or anything like that, but, like, he made this whole thing run, you know? Like, yeah. I mean, I got to, I got to Roadrunner in 1998. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in their offices when they were on Prince Street in Soho, and I was there for two years of that, and then two years of when they moved to their bigger offices, uh, up just a little north of Union Square, mm-hmm. right before, right before we did the deal with Universal, and uh, Universal bought part of the company, and then uh, I was out shortly thereafter. That, but uh, but I spent four years there, and uh, legit, some of the best thing. I mean, I don't think I'd be doing what I'm doing now if it wasn't for that. Do you think, I mean, I hope it, this was like the first question I put down because I, I kind of want people to freewheel on like the idea of this, but I know why I like Roadrunner and I know why I think it's important enough to do a documentary on it. Mm-hmm. But from your perspective, why is it important? And I think you'd be, you're in a unique position. What with you having run a label for what best part of 25 years now? So I'll say this, and, you know, people could argue with me on this and that sort of thing. I think Roadrunner is the last massive brand. Branding is huge. I mean, my record label, Ferret, was successful because of it. Uh, All my friends label that I grew up with, like Trust Kill, uh, you know, a number of labels like that. Branding is, is such a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, but Roadrunner was the last really big brand. Maybe Island Def Jam in there, like a brand where people were like, "Oh, that's got that logo. We'll buy it." You yeah. know, because we don't have that now. 
no one, no one gives a shit now. Like, I mean, it's just not there. I mean, what, you got to scroll down to the bottom of a certain page you find on Spotify that'll tell you the label. No one cares. Mm. Like, it's not the same now the way it is. It's, it's you know, it is in smaller hardcore circles or something like that, but not back then. Back then, it was huge. And Roadrunner, when I was there, one of the main things I wanted to do with their website, it was like, I want to, you know, like, I believe in the brand. I know it's real and amazing. And I want to, I just want to grow it. I just want to, I just want to promote the brand mm -hmm. and uh, solidify what it was. So, you know, um, yeah, being a part of that, that, that was a, that was a really big deal for me. Mm. Yeah. It's, um, I think it might even, I might be speaking out to the advantage of being in like on a laid back podcast is I'm allowed to fuck things up knowing there's a documentary coming up, which I can't fuck things up on. So allow me right. to pontificate because I think, I think it was even Leo Cohen, obviously of um, Def Jam at the time who right. said he loved Roadrunner because it was the last great indie. Yep. And it's like a similar kind of. Well, and it was funny because that dude had no business talking to me, Lyra Cohen, especially when I first met him. Sure. Um, <clears throat> he eventually later bought Ferret. Um, so we had bigger conversations. But when I first met him, he was just genuinely super nice dude. Um, I was very low level on the totem mm -hmm. pole and stuff, and he didn't treat me like that. Um, and, uh, you know, we chatted and stuff. And that was one of the things he was saying. He was like, oh, he was talking about the brand and how important the brand was. And I was like, weird. You're like an older rich guy that actually gets branding. And then, I, you know, the more I learned about him and I was, of course he gets it, you know, mm -hmm. because that, that's where he came from and stuff like that. I mean, branding was huge. It also worked better then than it does now. But brand, you know, branding is massive. I mean, yeah, we're not all TikTok fucking personalities or Instagram influencers and shit like that, you know, like, but record labels still have brands. And, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, I think that's important. But it was crazy being there back when it was a brand that, like, had millions of people that paid attention to it, you know? Yeah, I think the time you start there is really interesting as well, Carl, because we're in 98. So Bloody Kisses went gold three years prior. There's this expansion on the business end where I'm, I keep using these analogies and apologies to all the Roadrunner alumni that have to hear me say this over and over, but their top floor has been added. You've got, um, I think in your world in New York, there was Derek Shulman came in at the same, just before um, Dave Longcow. Jimmy Devlin in um, the UK. Um, what's the chap's name in Germany? Point being, Case was like reorganizing the business to sort of mobilize itself for something bigger on something greater. So, but at the same time, all the acts are doing act things. You've got flagship acts like Fear Factory and Machine Head doing the flagship thing. And you've also got some experimentation and innovation going off on the deep end. Like when the bro Ron Berman on board, um, probably Kay said to him, right, you're the jazz guy now. And he was required to go to jazz gigs and things like that and try and onboard jazz musicians. So what was the culture like when you joined them? Did you have like this, did you have an awareness that the, the, that recent few years wasn't quite thrash and death metal anymore? It was something else. 
No, you know, so it's funny. So I remember my interview at Roadrunner. Um, and uh, just so a little history. Uh, so I lived in New Jersey. And when uh, Matt Young got me an interview, uh, him and Felix Sebaceous uh, got me an interview. So I came in. And, you know, I hopped on a train, rolled in. It was like a train, supposed to be to a train to a subway. And then I'd be right there. And, uh, but I came in the day of like fucking insane storm, like crazy storm. Turns out my train that got into, uh, central square was the last one that got in after that, they shut the trains down because the tracks were flooding. Mm -hmm. So I was like, all right, you know, so I'm in, I didn't know anything at that time. I'd been coming to New York since I was a kid for shows and stuff. But I didn't know my way around. So I was like, all right, I'm in here. I'm like, all right, figure out where I'm going to go. It's fucking pouring rain. I bought, an, you know, $5 umbrellas from some dude on the street. The wind blew it out immediately, like literally turned it upside down. I was like, um, all right, fuck it. Uh, no cabs. Subways were closed because of the storm. And I was like, all right, I've got like a 25 block walk. So I just walked. You know, and uh, I will tell you this for that interview was the nicest I was dressed on any day I ever spent at Roadrunner in the next four years. <laughs> uh, and uh, but I made it. I made it down all the way to, you know, Soho. And uh, and I got to the office on time, a little early. And I sat in their little tiny vestibule, which was really, really small. Um, and uh, it was empty. No one was there. And then eventually the woman that worked the front got there and she was like, all right, no one's in here yet. So you just got to chill. And I was like, oh, fine, just do whatever. And uh, literally maybe one fifth of the staff came in that day because the storm was so bad. Like the Brooklyn Bridge was closed. Subways were closed. So no one came in. So I was just sitting there looking like I had just gotten out of the shower with all my clothes on. And I was just sitting there in the waiting room being like, all right, all right. Yeah. And then, uh, but Jonas Nassen, he came in and he, you know, checked in and looked over at me. He was like, are you Carl? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, oh, no shit. And I was like, all right. And he was like, all right, I'll be with you in a minute. So he went back in and then we came in and did our interview and was what it was. Mm -hmm. Two years later, him and I are hanging out having drinks. And he was like, funny thing about your interview, the fact that you made it there in those weather conditions when nobody else came to work and it was literally a nightmare outside. He was like, when I walked in and saw you sitting there, I was like, nah, I'm probably going to hire this guy. You know? Like, <laughs> so, yeah, it was, uh, the, the, that, that was pretty awesome. I got off track, so I think I lost something. But. No, it's cool. I was asking what the culture was like when, when you know, you oh, started no, working in earnest. Culture, it was like, I mean, I try and equate it to where I'm at now and what it was like with, you know, with, with my company and things like that. But uh, especially the, the culture of Roadrunner at Prince Street was, I mean, this is an office where, we had a big conference room mm -hmm. and God, I wish, I wish I could remember now, but one of the dudes that worked there, one of the, the radio guys, all the conference chairs, 
he was literally walking to work one day and was like, yo, this company is throwing out all their stuff and came in and got a bunch of people and everybody went and we literally rolled in with like 15 office chairs for free. So the <laughs> office, you know, the main conference room was just like all these different chairs, mm. but because it was still like, I mean, the label was making millions by then. I assume I had nothing to do with it, but you know, but it was still like this hardcore punk rock metal place mm-hmm. of just people being like, yeah, this is what we do. And we're just figuring it out as we go. Sure. And it got more corporate later, but back then it was, that was, that was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. There was always, um, how's that? How do we, how do I describe it? It was always rough and tumble. Even when it was, even though they had gold. Yeah, gold I mean, that's there. the thing. It was, and, and honestly, for what it's worth, at least, and I wasn't there that long, but it stayed that way the entire way I was there. Even when the offices got bigger and then, you know, uh, Island bought the company and stuff. Mm-hmm. I remember one of my favorite Roadrunner nights ever. <laughs> was the second time Nickelback played New York. Right. The first time Nickelback played New York, and it's funny if you think back to where records were, because by then their first album was at like 300,000. And people are like, yeah, only 300,000. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so Jamie Roberts, who's amazing, she was the head of publicity, um, she was like, Carl, I got to take the band out. Do you want to come? And I was like, fuck yeah. You know, I'm down. Let's where we're going to go. But that's who they sent out with Nickelback, who went on to be one of, they literally still have records as like for what they've done on radio being higher than he, like literally they, they reached levels better than Michael Jackson. I, I had to recount this to Dave Longcow the other week. Yeah, um, it's literally the most spinned. How you remind me is the most spinned radio song. Yeah, well, because they had "How You Remind Me" at the same time as the Spider-Man Spider-Man song, yes. and and no one's done that, so it was insane. But so at the time, they were like, "Hey, Carl, Jamie's going out." And she's like, "Carl, come with." And I was like, "Fuck yeah!" I was like, you know, not at my desk. I get a free meal. I'm in, and uh, so I hung out with those dudes all day. One, awesome guys. Mm-hmm. You know, like look up. Yeah, I was going to say. Is that right there? Yeah. Like, I, I respect my roots and where I came from, and that's my first one, and that, those are great guys. Um, but, yeah, again, one of the, you know, that that's a thing with Roadrun. Like, super fun, amazing day. Met those dudes, spent real time with them. And, uh, you know, you kind of grow up through that. What was the second time then that they went out? The second time, uh, that was the first time. He said the best, your best night at Road Associated Roadrunner was. Oh. Um, it was also Nickelback. So, um, so the first time I took him out, later on they played Arlene's Groceries to only a Roadrunner staff. Right. No one came. It was Roadrunner staff, no one else there. Uh, next time they played, they sold out Hammerstein Ballroom. Um, you know, little step up. Just a little. And, uh, and there was a big after party that night. And, uh, but by then, you know, Island was in the mix and stuff like that. And, uh, 
I don't want to make anybody mad, but not all of Roadrunner was invited to the party. <laughs> and uh, some of us lower level guys, and I remember with my friend Mark Shapiro, who's gone on to be exceptional in the music industry, was then and is now. I was like, I was like, dude. If you need to take it, take it. We're all here. No, no, no. I was like, we're all here. We're going to this, you know, and he was like, and I was like, dude, we're not invited to this. I, we're not on the list. And Mark was like, fuck that. We're going. And I was like, <laughs> you know what? Let's go. And uh, Niels will say we got in and it was an awesome night. And uh, <laughs> it was a great night. Literally at one point, me and Mark ended up at Leo Cohen's house. Wow. Just kind of standing there being like, Jesus Christ. We need to get better at what we do. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, it, it was a great night. And uh, yeah, it, it, Road Room was just, it was just always all over the place and, and just always fun. And it was just always, I mean, if you look at the people there and what they've gone on to do, I mean, look at Corey Brennan. You know, Corey pollination Brennan, is just fucking insane. I mean, he's literally the closest thing to a mentor I've ever had. Uh, he was my first boss really ever and uh, I still remember the day he took me out to lunch and was like yeah I'm going to leave and I was like but but what about me <laughs> and uh, he was like you'll be fine and uh, you know I was fine it was all good and we continued to work together forever but uh, I mean what only was person the guy would ever refer to me as a potential mentor and better at anything and everything that I know anybody doing in music. What, what was his role then at the time? He was the head of marketing. Right. Okay. And that's why it married up with new media. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I worked right under him and yeah. uh yeah. Yeah. He yelled at me sometimes and I still remember being like, and I was always a guy like, I like working. I'm happy to go to work. But the few times I'm never really calling sick, but uh, I was also in a band, so we would always do shit. Mm -hmm. So now and then I'd like call on a Friday, be like, dude, I'm sick. Meanwhile, I knew full well, it's just because we're going to do like a three day weekend with my band. Mm -hmm. And he's like, well, how sick are you? And I was like, dude, I'm pretty sick. And he was like, you probably make it to work. <laughs> and uh, we would go back and forth like that. And uh, there was definitely times where it was like, guys, I can't go. I got to go to work. <laughs> so can you tell me a little bit more about Corey's input to the company and why he's so well regarded? Because he's a bit of a blind spot in my, uh, especially in this period when things are a little bit, um, there's a, an expansion going on. We're moving between independent to IDJ Roadrunner. So where does Corey sit in this and what's his input and why do people love him so much? So I came in under Corey right from the get-go in 1998. Uh, uh, in 1998, 1998, and uh, you know, he was my boss, and you know, I never had a boss before, so I was just you know happy to be there doing whatever he told me. Um, and we did all that, and but he was also like, I mean, hell, at the time he was young, I mean, I was a child, I was in my I think I was 25, uh, maybe less, and uh. You know, so we were just going. So he was just the dude that was telling me what to do. And I didn't know shit. And, uh, I mean, hell, I remember the the first time 
I ever got sent on a business trip ever in my life. My first business trip of all time. And uh, I was going out with a friend of mine, Doug Spangenberg, who we'd hired to film this. And I was meeting him in Arizona and we're going to go out and film stuff for Soulfly. We're going to go out to Max Cavalier's house and film all this and all this sort of shit. And I get to the airport and I was like, uh, I forgot my paper ticket. And in 1998, I mean, I don't know. I think there were cell phones. I didn't fucking have one. You know, like, and I, I remember calling Corey from a payphone and be like, dude, I don't have my fucking ticket. I don't know what to do. And I remember Corey being like, so figure it out. And I was like, so that's the knowledge you're going to park on me. And uh, he was like, yeah, no, figure that shit out. And I was like, and I did. I got on a plane, made it all work. But uh, it was very stressful. Um, you know, but back then, I mean, you know, like then he was the boss. I mean, we went through, we did everything from figuring out winners for contests to figuring out these big internet things that I was doing and, mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And then just the, you know, and it was all on like, you know, desktop computers because laptops weren't a thing and all sort of stuff. And it was just like, you know, um, at the time he just had, and it never went away, but he had this presence as just this guy that kind of ran things and was influential. And whether it was Derek Schulman or Jonas or um, Monty, like, I mean, everybody respected anything Corey had to say as far as it came to marketing and selling records. And he was just really, really fucking good at it. And uh, yeah, I was really, really lucky enough to learn at his heel. And uh, it was really good for me. Yeah. One person that I should have mentioned at the start, did you meet Case early doors? I did. I did. I spent I spent a decent amount of time with Case. Uh, I met Case in my early first interview. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then I spent a bunch of time with him randomly after that and all like during uh, especially when Kill Switch, uh, when that became a thing when they were coming into the label, uh, Case came and talked to me about them. Um, and that was probably one of the first times where he just kind of pulled me aside and was like, Oh, let's talk about things. And, uh, you know, and then later on, um, when I was leaving Roadrunner to go do, pursue Ferret full time, uh, care, uh, case was the first person that made me an offer mm -hmm. for Ferret. Um, so that was pretty awesome as well. To, to sit down and have that different sort of conversation with him. And, uh, you know, didn't work out. I, I went in a different direction. Mm -hmm. And then I saw him like a year ago. I mean, I, and a year after so. we were all at the same restaurant and we were chatting and stuff. And he was like, oh, so are you rich yet? And I was like, no, <laughs> oh, you know, I'm doing the best I can. But, you know, like, no. <laughs> but uh, now he was always case- Case was always good to me, and uh, I wish I remembered who told me this. I think it might have been Doug Keogh, uh, but they told me early on, they're like, if you have to talk with Case, he likes to argue. They said, like, he, he's not going to take you at your word. 
He's not going to be like, oh, this is a good band, you know, or this is what we should do. They're like, Case likes to argue. He wants you to fight your point. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was like, oh, okay. I mean, I don't want to argue with a dude like that, you know, like I'm fresh out of college and just a shitty hardcore kid. And this dude obviously has done amazing things. But uh, but I got it. And, you know, we argued a couple times and that resulted in some some pretty cool stuff like Kill Switch and mm-hmm. Things like that, but it was uh, it was cool. I'm I'm almost positive it was Doug Keogh that told me that about that. <laughs> yeah, you have to go just a little bit beyond just yeah. saying something. Yeah. So what? Why yeah. did you? Why did you continue with Ferret while you were a Roadrunner? Or was it just like the role of Roadrunner wasn't necessarily? It didn't feel like a conflict of interest, or no? I mean, because I always thought Ferret was a joke compared to Roadrunner. Like <laughs> getting to work at Roadrunner was like a dream. You know, like, I was like, holy shit. Like, I started this, you know, I was putting out seven inches, you know, like, making no money, but having fun doing it. Mm. But I, I thought it was part of the music industry. I was like, yo, I don't have to do this shit. I built my own website, you know, all that sort of stuff. So that turned into, like, you know, a job at Roadrunner where they paid me a couple bucks. And uh, I was like, oh. But it wouldn't stop because at the time, you know, at that at that time in life, all I cared about was music and everything else. Sure. I cared about music. I cared about my record label. Uh, I cared about my band. I cared about my friends. And that was it, you know. And, uh, and that's literally all I did. Especially once I started at Roadrunner. Every vacation day, every sick day, every way I could get pulled off out of work, we my band would use those to go play shows sure. you know and everything we did with ferret was just on the side and i never thought it was a conflict because i mean not for nothing i did a really good shot at roadrunner like yeah i was good at what i did and i made sure that everything i did for them was was on point and mm-hmm. never faltered and i knew full well if it did Corey would whoop my ass you know like i mean there was no way he would let anything slide so nothing ever you know that's it that was that was my whole life roadrunner and ferret you know and i had dogs and i kept them alive and that literally was it <laughs> you, know? you did an interview with doc Coyle some time ago yes what what am i recalling from that jonas put you on public speaking courses he did why because uh, I was always halfway decent on stage talking in front of people. But uh, if you put me in, in a conference room and I had to talk to like 12 people that were like, I don't know. I would just, I wasn't good at it. Right. Okay. And if you're, if you're championing this new media thing, if you're championing what is effectively the new platform for the, the label to be pushing itself, they want a guy that can fight yeah, for the budget, I mean, fight for the I mean, I think Jonas saw, I mean, I know for a fact, Jonas saw like higher things for me Hmm. and it's, you know, like he was, Jonas liked me and was impressed by me and he saw, you know, the shortcomings that I did have and one of them was public speaking and he was like, you know, and he pulled me aside and was like, listen, we, we, you know, we'd like to do this for you because he's like, I think the world of you and I'd like this see bigger things for you but mm-hmm. i think you need this you know right and uh 
I know that's pretty awesome to have a boss come up and do that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, that, that's something, I mean, he's, you know, he'll, he'll go down as one of the people that, that had a big impact on me. Was it ever an issue running ferret at Roadrunner? Only once. It? Right. Okay. Only once. And that was, uh, <laughs> I don't want to get sued. <laughs> just because this dude is litigious and he's a little bit of an asshole, but, uh, that's, it's not illegal to say that, right? Uh, <laughs> just don't name him, I guess. Oh no, I'm going to name him. Fuck <laughs> 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 it. Um, no, uh, Tony from victory called, uh, the vice principal, the, not the vice principal, the v- vice president of, of roadrunner, Doug Keogh. Mm-hmm. called him once and uh so i get a call and doug's like carl you're in my office and i love doug he and i have been friends and worked together for years after i left um and i liked him right from the get-go because he walked in his office and right behind him was a massive black train jack poster framed wow. uh one of my favorite bands ever we lost a singer recently mm-hmm. because of covid and uh that was terrible, but I always loved that Doug had that behind him, and I was like, because it was a Roadrunner release, and it's one of the best records. I mean, it's amazing. But he was like, hey, Carl, I got to talk to you, and I was like, all right, what's up? And he was like, so I've been told that you've been, you know, using Roadrunner company time and Roadrunner resources to run your record label on the side, and I was like, you know, not expecting that. I was kind of like, oh, well, um, no, I haven't been doing that. I, I mean, I use lunch breaks, weekends, vacation days, all that sort of stuff. And ask Corey, like if Corey has a problem, he'll let you know, but hmm. no, I haven't <clears throat> been doing that. And he was like, well, we got a call from somebody. And yeah, it was Tony Victory called and like straight up told on me, <laughs> like, <laughs> like little kid style. I was like, dude, you're legit telling on me. But yeah, he told on me. And uh, so it was an uncomfortable conversation, went through it well, and Doug's a good guy, and he, you know, made it work, uh, you know, realized I wasn't doing anything wrong, and, you you know, if I was, you could fault my job for the company, but, I mean, I was there for four years, and I got promoted multiple times and got raises and stuff like that, like, you know, I wasn't lacking for performance, but it was right. funny. That was the only, that was the only, that was the one time it came up beyond mm-hmm. that it came up, but it came up in different ways. And it came up in ways that I will never forget ever. Um, <laughs> so the, the head of sales, I was telling, he knew about my label and he was like, dude, let me talk to you about my label. And he was talking to me about it. And uh, his name was Mike. The best thing that Mike Cantor did for me, which will go down in the history of my life. Um, so the first national buy ferret ever got ever was, uh, so I put out the first kill switch engage record. Mm-hmm. So I signed them and put that record out and, uh, and it was doing all right. And I had, I, I had distro, but it wasn't good distro. It was, it was really good indie distro, but it wasn't like fucking red or Sony or anything like that. Yeah. But we were, you know, like I was selling a little. 
um, but nothing national, no national buys. And Mike called me in his office and he was like, dude, this is a pretty good record, man. I think I can help you out with this. And I was like, tell me what to do. And, uh, and he was like, oh, well, my friend is the buyer for Hot Topic. Um, at the time, his name Hanara, who we're still friendly to this day. Um, and he was like, well, he really likes the Lakers. So go buy a Lakers jersey this size and then come back and I'll wrap it in a kill switch CD, put a one sheet in it and we're going to FedEx it to him. And uh, I was like, oh, shit, that's all right. So I went, did it, bought the Lakers jersey and I, and sent it, and that resulted in the first like national chain buy Ferret ever got for a record. Wow. And I think he bought like fifteen thousand Kill Switch CDs. I think I'd sold like two thousand before that. Wow. And he was like, "I had to take fifteen thousand of them." And I was like, "Oh my god!" You know, like it was, and and that was all Michael Cantor. He he did that, and it wasn't because he thought I was like competing against Roger or anything mm-hmm. like that. Like most of the people there. Just they were like, oh, this is young kid Carl. He's actually got a label that doesn't suck and it's pretty cool. And he's doing a good job for us. So we'll help him out. Sure. And uh, and that that was the community and the vibe of Roadrunner. Mm. Like no one ever I never hid Ferret ever. Like from the get-go, every you know, the people that gave a shit would know and they knew. And uh but I still did all my work for, you know, for Roadrunner and I loved it and it was mm. amazing. And, uh, you know, but at the same time I was able to like learn. I mean, dude, when I started at Roadrunner, I was like, they were like, Oh, do you have a one sheet? And I was like, the fuck is a one sheet? And, uh, or asking me about like college radio or sound scan. I was like, I don't know what anything you're talking about. Mm-hmm. I carry seven inches into a record store and I was like, would you like to take some on consignment? You know, like, and, uh, so no, like no, Roadrunner Roadrunner was massive for me and the people there were exceptional people that that were all really, really good to me. Yeah. And uh and man, we had a lot of fun being there. It was it was a good place. Yeah. One thing I observe when I come when I compare Ferret to Roadrunner is that sometimes I see Roadrunner is a bit late on the uptick. You'd have bands like, for example, As I Lay Down, a lot of post-hardcore bands and Killswitch included. That kind of music wouldn't necessarily make a lot of the Roadrunner roster until a few years later. Do you think there was like a they were late to the uptake, or do you think it was just a there was a, just where Ferry was positioned, where Roadrunner was positioned? The ears to the ground are in different places, and oh, I could be just trying shit. Do you no. disagree? Oh, no, I think you're right. I mean, I think, I mean, if you look at Roadrunner now, Roadrunner mm-hmm. 2021, what it's going to be in 2022, what it was in 2020, you know, you've got Turnstile, you've got Code Orange, um, you know, these bands, I mean, you go back, I mean, that stuff, that's like early 2000s, late 1990s throwback, you know? It is. And, uh, and maybe those bands will hear this and be like, fuck him. He's not right. Like, that's fine. That's fine. Um, but, I mean, they're wrong. I mean, this is... Yeah. I, mean, is, I was told a long time ago, actually, when I was at Roadrunner, that music can be cyclical. Mm. And if 
look at it, you know, like, like look at what's now, like the things that are doing really well now are like late nineties, early two thousand style, uh, metal core. I mean, uh, I mean, sorry, new metal. You look at new metal that was, you know, corn and slutting on all sort of stuff. As far as the underground went, mm-hmm. like the, the real underground hardcore bands and stuff, all that shit, everyone hated it. That was like a bad word. They fucking hated it. And now you look at hardcore bands, like younger hardcore kids in their early 20s and stuff like that. And they're like, dude, I grew up listening to fucking corn. They were awesome. And I'm always just like, that's so weird. Because that shit was not cool at all. But now they're like, dude, we love that. And now they're morphing it into their like new school hardcore stuff. And there's just like, so music just rolls and is what it is. And I don't know. I mean, I grew up an elitist hardcore dickhead, you know, when I was <laughs> in high school. And, you know, one of my friends was like, yo, let's go to Lollapalooza. And I was like, are you kidding? Fuck that. It's <laughs> fucking lame. And uh, you know what? In hindsight, really should have gone. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, we did. You know, like, but uh, yeah, no. So like, yeah, I feel like music is cyclical, and yes, yes they're pulling from the past, a hundred percent. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, I mean, if you look at Roadrunner right now, like what they're doing, they're looking at you know, stuff that was really popular 10, 15 years ago, maybe a mm. little more. And yeah, and that was stuff that I was doing. I mean, I never heard anything that got that big. I mean, I did, you know, in Flames and Kill Switch and Every Time I Die. And, yeah. you know, all these bands have amazing careers now and they're just, they're exceptional. Um, maybe never got as big as I think they should have gotten, mm. you know, like... I mean, every time I die, I should have been as big as Rage Against the Machine. I mean, that that would how how fun would that have been? Um, but yeah, so it's yeah, it's I don't know. Do you think those bands weren't necessarily a priority at that time? I mean, they had Vision of Disorder, so that was that was one. And I mean, Vision of Crisis, I think. But you're right. But like, so priorities. The like, at the same time, does that make the difference? Like, look at clutch yeah clutch elephant riders right Mm. that benefited that was their big major label record Mm -hmm. they had fucking billboards on all the fucking roads i mean they dumped millions into that and it sold i mean i don't know two three hundred thousand which back then which is amazing back then was a failure i mean now i'll be like yo i'll see you on my beach but, uh, you know, but like, so it didn't do what it should have done back then or what they hoped. But if you think, if you look at it, that was, they used that as a basis mm-hmm. and they grew into just writing their own path. And that band is still makes a living and are huge today, you know, like, so it's, it's one of those things like, you know, you don't know, especially with major labels and indies that have the money that roadrunner had like you don't know what's gonna work yeah i mean shit dare i say nobody knew nickelback was gonna work like that except maybe dave lanco <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about killsters then and how it ended up on the roadrunner roster so how did that come about then i know you must have picked them up i, mean, I saw a video last week when 
I think it was something like it was Hellfest. That's what it was. How not yeah. the French, not the French Hellfest, but obviously it must have been like a <clears throat> and oh, East the real Coast. Hellfest. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it must have been the real Hellfest. And it's just so fun watching little young Adam D on the drums and yeah, little, and little Jesse. Even before I worked at Roadrunner, I was doing the label. I worked at a diner, and but I was really hustling the label to the extent that I could, you know. Um, but uh, I knew Mike from Overcast, and he sent me a demo. He was like, this is me, my new band. He sent it to me with no vocals. And I was like, dude, this is good. Get a singer, I'm in. And, uh, you know, and we did, and, and that was great. And that, that was all kind of coinciding with me getting the job at Roadrunner and growing and growing and stuff like that. And then that went so well that, like, all of a sudden, um, and I'll preface this with, I was number, another, never one of those guys that if I had a, my record label and my office was a closet or, like, my side bedroom, mm-hmm. I was never going to be like, oh, yeah, fuck you. I want a three-record deal or a four-record deal or any of that sort of stuff. I, I always, I know. I walked where I lived and I never wanted to like overstep that or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So when I did the kill switch thing, I was like, I'll just put this record out and that'll be great. And, uh, you know, so we did that. And then all of a sudden, and of course I wanted to do another record for them because it mm-hmm. was going so well. But by then you had Century Media and Victory and, you know, all these other labels coming at them. And I was talking to them and I was like, well, shit um end of the day at the very least what i would like to do is make my catalog piece more valuable and do the best thing for you guys so it's like let me see if roadrunner, roadrunner likes it mm-hmm. and uh so i brought it in and my kid was anr there and he loved it i wasn't anr so i couldn't technically bring it in so i brought mm-hmm. the get it brought it in um but and i think i told you this before and i hope you mentioned it in your conversation with lanco but, you know, Case, I have no idea what he thought of it. I, I don't know if he thought of it as just another metal band or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I know for a fact that one of the reasons Case really, like, it got in his head was because Dave Lanco was like, dude, this is really good. And meanwhile, Lanco is busy doing Nickelback and making millions of dollars for the label. And, uh, you know, like... I'm little dude bringing in metal bands, mm-hmm. but Lanka was like, this is really good. And uh, yeah, I remember case I was working late one night, everybody was gone. There was like two people out of 45 still in the office. And I was sitting there and case came up to me and I was listening to kill switch as a, uh, you know, and uh, he came up and he was like, so uh, you like this? And I turn around and look at him and it's case. And, Late night, he liked to walk around the office barefoot and shit like that. And I was like, oh, hey, it's weird you're talking to me and it makes me uncomfortable, but, uh, you know, awesome. And I was like, yeah, you know, it's really good. And he was like, yeah, I, I think I like it too. I think I like to, I, I'm thinking about bringing in. I was like, and you know, so I started trying to talk to him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and he kind of like, it was a brief conversation, but it, it, it was pretty amazing. And uh, it, it, was, it was a fun conversation with case and then uh and then yeah and then the deal rolled through gitter um and he brought them in and it so was, it, was, uh, it was really a matter of 
the major label interest and you wanted to ferry them, are you effectively keeping them within your circle of influence because you no, were on a road? No, it wasn't even a major label. No, it was I like the big, big indies. You know what I mean? Yeah, it, exactly. It was the big indies. And I was just like, well, if you're going to, I think this band is good enough that like, let's, let's raise the bar. You know, like I didn't want them to go to victory. Uh, you guys want to throw every cent you'll ever make away in the trash. Fuck that. You know? And, uh, <laughs> Century Media, I love, you know, like those are my friends, the people that, that ran that company, Marco and stuff, and amazing people. But at the same time, I was like, all right, if this is this good and they like it, maybe I'll see if Roadrun likes it. Mm-hmm. I brought it in and I don't know. I think historically, if you look back, I think it went pretty fucking well for him. Totally. I mean, I did mention it to Lonko and he, um, we, we extrapolated a little bit on my, uh, my last serenade. And that's the one where he was like, ah, great. There's a radio sensibility here, which I can really work. Yeah. And it's also good for the brand because we've got these hard, these AAA acts slipping on Nickelback. And we've got this other one that can sneak in the underground and keep like that metal credibility into the label. And that's kind of what, that's, that's where his hooks were in. It was, it was amazing listening to him. Oh, I, I can't wait to watch it. Cause I, I always, I mean, he was always the, the cool thing that happened with me at Roadrunner is I had like a, a low level peon position, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I thought it was cool because it said manager of new medium. I was like, fuck yeah, balling. But, uh, you know, it wasn't. Um, but dudes like Lonco and, and you know, like, like some of these other people, like they really, really were respectful and awesome to me. And, yeah. uh, and I learned so much and, and, you know, and the same thing, I learned that about managers, which I learned that, which I use to this day, mm-hmm. you know, dudes like Larry Mazur and some of these other managers that could have rolled in and just been like, man, blew me off. But like, oh, I'll pull up a chair to your cubicle and fucking tell me about things. Like, I want to yeah. know what you're doing and stuff and like, and treat me the respect and, uh, you know, and then I developed relationship with them over the years. Mm-hmm. And that was, uh. That was pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's especially that time as well when you see it exploding from this late night indie into this, what it ended up becoming, which is, I don't know how you describe early 2000s Roadrunner. The beast it became, I guess. That's like the powerhouse that it became. The powerhouse it, I mean, it became. so massive. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I guess it was big to begin with. I mean, my... I mean, the first time I ever went on a trip for work, like a business trip, was Corey Brennan sent me out. Um, he was like, we want to do a video series around the making of the new Soulfly record. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, that's a good idea. We can do that. So he had me hire somebody to film it. And I hired my friend, Doug Spangenberg. It's amazing. He filmed all the old U.S. Hellfest videos. Mm-hmm. So I brought him on and then him and I flew out to Arizona to Max's house where we stayed for like three days. And it was just like, it was insane. I was like, wait, so I'm just going to hang out with Max Cavalera for three days and his whole family and film shit and barbecue and listen to me and talk music and all that. And it was just, you know, and I was like, all right. So to me, that was a big label because they paid for everything, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, that was just, to me, that that was crazy that I was even doing that. And, uh, and for what it was worth, Max was 
Max and Gloria were, were beyond nice to me. Mm. It helped that like literally me and Doug walked into their house for that. And then uh, Max's at the time, I don't know what the dude did for him. I don't know if it was his like go-to guy or something, but this dude that worked for Max, like we walked in and turns out he grew up with my friend Doug that we hired to do all the filming. All right. Okay. Like they legit went to high school together and hadn't seen each other since then. Mm. And so it was like, holy shit. And it, it just made for, yeah, it was a crazy weekend. <laughs> Good time. So that close, closing out on these last couple of questions, um, yep. what was the, the best day and worst day at Roadrunner? And you can't say the day you started and the day you left. Yeah, no, no, that's fair. Neither of them were the worst day. Uh, I don't know if I had a bad day. I don't even know if I want to talk about the worst day at Roadrunner. You don't have to if you don't want um, best day. I think the most fun day was for Slipknot, Iowa. You know, those guys, they want to rewrite the rules and there, there's a whole lot of fuck you going on with that band and stuff like that. So mm -hmm. we were trying to think. So I was like, all right, what if we dropped, especially consider when this came out, I forget the year, but it was like a while ago. Mm -hmm. um, Napster was still a thing, but Napster was a, a new thing before it got shut down, you know, all that. Yeah. <clears throat> but we were like, all right, what do we, what would we drop like a free MP3, like through Napster, through our site, all that sort of thing. Because uh, nobody did that back then. Everyone was like, you're not, there was no such thing as giving away content. Mm -hmm. We're like, no, motherfucker, you can sell this. We sell singles, you know? And I was like, no, let's just give it away. Let's <laughs> do that. So we did that. I think I was in the office till like midnight because um, we dropped it at like 4 p.m. And it was just like, and our website was crashing and we were doing Napster and all stuff. And it was just like, and he was like me and the president stuck around and every now and then he'd come by car and be like, hey, how's this going? And I was like, hey, I don't know. You know, <laughs> everything's broken. And, uh, but it, it was awesome because it was super stressful, but it was just like the shit that was happening was just, it was just exploding and it was amazing. Um, that was a great day. Um, wow. Uh, so it those days where you're in the trenches, isn't it? Where it's like that. Was yeah. I mean, that's, that's the, that's the thing I like most. I love that most about ferret. I love that most about good fight that I do now. Mm -hmm. Like you put me in a day that's just like nonstop, and stressful and like you've got to get from you know x to z and you've got this amount of time to do it and do it you know like i don't know i've always loved that i don't want to do it all the time but when it comes up i love it and yeah. uh you know and there was a handful of days like that at roadrunner that i that i really really loved yeah and i don't know about the worst days it was a bad day there are bad days. Corey telling me he was leaving was a bad day because it just changed everything. Mm. You know, especially since I was young, because in my mind it was like, well, I'll work here forever. He'll be my boss forever and that everything's great. And because uh, <laughs> I didn't know, you know, I never worked for anybody before. I didn't know that that's, you know, like I didn't really get how things would change. And, uh, you know, so, so that was weird. Um, I mean, the day I left wasn't necessarily a bad day, mm. but it, it was, 
it wasn't a good day because they, they wanted me to stay and you know that there there wasn't necessarily a road for me to stay that made sense right <clears throat> but but it sucked to walk away from everybody i, I was going to ask about this so when you went full-time into ferret was the numbers just right or was it a vibe oh but you've alluded to it there there wasn't really a path for you to take to stay a roadrunner it was it was the biggest risk i ever took in my life i mean i wasn't making tons of money at roadrunner but uh <clears throat> they were good to me and i did especially back then you know like yeah. i did well and uh you know but i by then i had had people around me and you know i had a lawyer by then and you know like a business manager that were handling ferret and then I had good friends in the music industry, um, some of which might have worked at Roadrunner, and uh, and they were like, "Dude, like you, you got a couple records that are doing better than some of the records on Roadrunner." Mm. Obviously, not Nickelback or any of that sort of shit. I mean, we're talking the low, low end of shit. Mm -hmm. But I didn't have multiple offices around the world, and you know, employees. I had me, and they were like, you know, but. They were like, dude, you got to give this a shot, see where it goes. And I was like, maybe. And it was, yeah. And that was far from the worst day, mm -hmm. but it was a super scary day. Um, yeah. I can hey, tell man. you right now, if I didn't work at Roadrunner, I don't think I ever would have done it. If it wasn't for the people I met there and everything I learned while I was there, I never, I never would have stepped out and done what I did. But, uh, yeah. you know, and I'm glad because... Obviously, it worked out pretty well. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to cl close out with, um, not a question, but I can see you got the obsolete gold record behind you. Uh, yeah. So, all right. So, look up. I'll show you. Um, I, I keep, all right. So, <laughs> all right. So, that right there, the big one with the mouth, Yeah, that's the first T-shirt good fight ever, I mean, uh, Ferret ever made. Mm -hmm. That was uh, Aaron Turner, the artist. Uh, he did that t-shirt and I was like, Hey, could I get that, that painting? And he was like, sure. And he traded me for eight shirts. And I don't even want to tell you what that's worth right now. <laughs> um, and then I've got my obey stuff and, uh, but yeah, so I've got Nickelback, Obsolete, uh, my kill switch and my <laughs> slipknot. Yeah. Yeah. I can see it. Yeah. That's awesome.